Good evening. Turn with me to John chapter 12. This week we enter this coming Sunday, a holiday season, whereby we call it Palm Sunday, um, and it's truly palm, uh, when Jesus came into Jerusalem and they put palm branches out, it was on Monday, but that's okay. We can still celebrate it on Sunday. We'll be in John chapter 12, verses 12, all the way down to the end of the chapter, this coming Sunday, actually all the way down to verse 36, an absolute incredible scripture. I have this bug circling around my head for like the whole time I got on stage. It's distracting me. So you don't want to miss that, guys. This Sunday, and, the, and, and truly one of the incredible things about John chapter 12, verses uh, 12 down to the verse 36 is, I mean, the whole portion of Scripture is incredible. But the Lord Jesus Christ, when you connect the triumphal entry, the tearful entry to uh, the gospel of Luke, you find that there was a prophecy fulfilled in his coming into Jerusalem on that Monday that he even said in Luke chapter 19, if you knew the day of your visitation, indicating um, the very prophecy of Daniel 9, you don't want to miss that on Sunday. Truly incredible. But we find ourselves in verses 1 through 11 this evening. John chapter 12 Verse 1, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death. Also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. This portion of Scripture is the beginning, really, of Passover week. This happened on Sunday. Monday, Jesus would come into Jerusalem. Friday, he would be cut off from his people, die on the cross. 
and Sunday morning he would rise again from the dead. We're normally in, if you're a visitor in uh, the Old Testament on Thursdays, we're taking a break from Proverbs tonight. I want to point you a few things out just by way of point so that can help you remember because there is a lot packed into the verses that we just read. Number one, you see the heartfelt service of Martha. This could be the event, probably is the event, though doesn't have to be the event where Martha is complaining against Mary for sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ, where Martha is preparing the food for all of Jesus' disciples and who knows how many more people who were coming in with Jesus Christ to be there to listen to him teach. Here it says that Martha served, they had made him supper. Martha served. In another portion, if it is still talking about the same event, which probably it is, some believe it's two separate events, we know that Martha is complaining that Mary is not helping. She's in there working really hard, and Jesus Christ is there teaching, and Mary is at the feet of Jesus Christ, worshiping him and listening to him teach. And Jesus told, tells Martha, you are worried, you are anxious about many things, but Mary has chose the greater part. Now we take that, and there is entire sermons built off of this to try to make um, Martha look bad and Mary look great, look great. And even kind of as these sermons have progressed, almost doctrines build, built off of them to try to make worship superior to service. When our service is and should be worship itself. And I don't like what a lot of, not that they've done it on purpose, but a lot of ministers in preaching that, trying to come up with the sermon, kind of looks at Mary as the hero and looks at Martha as the villain. To the point where they, as I mentioned, make worship superior. Understand this. The only way to understand what Jesus is trying to tell Mary, uh, Martha is not a principle of every single time, every single day of our lives, we should follow what Mary's doing. He was speaking in two ways. He was speaking in, number one, and very importantly, the way that he was speaking is that Martha, in that exact circumstance, that very day, 2,000 or so, give or take years ago, that Mary chose the proper thing in that moment. Understand that that's what's going on. Jesus is not saying, you know, I want every time the, the mention of Jesus Christ, obviously he's present, but the mention of Jesus Christ, every time that that happens, you leave the kitchen, ladies or gentlemen, and you come in and you sit down on uh, your, you know, on the floor and look up to the person talking about Jesus, or in this case, Jesus himself. That is not what the scriptures is promoting. Jesus is saying, in this moment, 
On this day, all those years ago, Mary at that specific time was choosing a better thing than what Martha was currently doing. Martha could have came out of the kitchen for 5, 10, 15 minutes because, guys, the, the cooking still needs to get done. People got to eat. Jesus is immensely grateful for the supper that Mary, or excuse me, Martha provided and that she served over. That's what I believe exactly has happened. And then secondly, Jesus, knowing all things, being the incarnate God, knows that Martha was stressed about life. You're stressed. You're in there in the kitchen. You're, 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 you're stressed about feeding all these people. And uh, you're sitting there. Now you're mad at the people at the feet of Jesus worshiping. It's like, so you're, you're worried about stuff instead of serving. And she still, by the way, gets rewards in heaven for serving. But you're worried in your serving to the point where you're frustrated with other people. If you are frustrated with other people in your service towards Jesus Christ, then your service is not for Jesus Christ entirely. It's important to know that. Now, this idea that we're only rewarded at the Bema Seat if we have a 100% pure motives of a heart is a lie. Jesus will reward his children for the service rendered to him or to anybody else in his name. The Bible teaches us that. The Bible even says that when you give a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, we will be in heaven. He says, thanks for giving me water. And we'll be like, our Lord, Jesus Christ, when did we ever give you water? He says, as much as you gave it to one of these little ones, you gave it to me. And Jesus is going to say to people, thank you for visiting me in prison. Guys, Jesus was never in prison. And we're going to say, when did we ever visit you in prison? And he's going to say, as much as you visit one of these, you visited me. So we get rewarded for the physical actions we do on behalf of Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ to serve people. So, so I, I've always been a little troubled by how Martha gets a bad rap for that. Here it doesn't mention it, it just says Martha served. And if it is in, indeed the same event, which I believe it is, it's just saying Martha served. She served supper. What a blessing. You see the heartfelt service of Martha. Guys, don't mistake the uh, serving, no matter how menial the, the world uh, calls our service, whether it be a volunteer at church or the highest servant in the uh, uh, church uh, who's often thought of as the pastor, which he should be the highest servant, not because he's the pastor, but because he should be serving more than anyone. Don't ever look down on the, the, the service, practical service, sweeping, mopping, cleaning, cooking. That stuff is going to be rewarded at the Bema Seat Judgment. The Bible even says that the greatest amongst us is the servant of all. Do you know that in the Gospel of John, we get a prophecy it prophesies that at the marriage supper of the Lamb, 
that he will have us to sit down. He's talking about the bride of Christ. He will have us to sit down and you can miss it. You can actually miss it as you read through the Bible that this is actually what Jesus said. He will have us to sit down. He will gird himself and he will serve us. Do you know what, do you know what it's saying? That everyone has to sit down. And Jesus is going to be the one that puts on an apron to serve everyone the supper at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Is that not incredible? Do you know how many Africans are going to rise up and be like, no, 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 you are a bunch of Peters. You know you're going to do that. You can't even be like, no, no, Jesus, you sit down and let me serve you. And Jesus will be like, no, I'm greater than you. You sit down, I serve you. The greatest amongst us is the servant of all. So it's only fitting that Jesus Christ being the greatest servant of all is the one serving the food at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Serving people is very highly looked upon by Jesus Christ. It is immensely important that we serve one another. I believe that hospitality, whether it be a church that is hospitable, a family that is hospitable, a home that is hospitable, is reflecting the very will and nature of God himself. I believe in it. The Bible talks about it. It says, be careful that, uh, how you turn people away. And I'm not saying you got to keep your front door open and offer every drunkard in off the street into your home. There is a balance. But we need to have open homes. I believe this. You never know when angels are going to come in and get served. You never know. I don't know. To, well, the Lord opens doors. We have seen such blessing just because of hospitality. We get to meet all kinds of people. We get to have all kinds of fellowship and friends. There are so many, and it's not so much uh, Africans, though it, it still is, I believe. I don't get invited to your guys' house. No, I'm kidding. I, I should not try to make you feel bad at church. Guilt-ridden. I... I I think that in America, too, this is a big problem because Africans are very hospitable. I go back to the States, I'm in culture shock, especially in a Maine winter where everybody, what they call, I hate the way Mainers talk. Sorry, John, Jody, you don't talk like a Mainer. You got, oh, you're a Mainer, too. They call it hunkering down. We're going to hunker down. I hate that. Hunker down, it means to get in your house and protect yourself from the weather. Well, the problem with that is they become so closed off for six months of the year. Sorry, Maine, I, I shouldn't say this with... It's only a, a few of you, some Mainers watch this. You know, I always forget that I'm being recorded here. It's like entrapment. Jerome and Preston, you're entrapping me. Hunker down. And listen, it's not their fault. It is brutal. It is brutally cold. But we need to get out of our comfort zone. I know that's a cliche within the church. We need to get out of our 
comfort zone because it's true. And we need to constantly be ministering to people, serving them. Man, I remember I went to this um, and it, uh, to to this church in New Jersey. I was going to preach at, share at, and this I'll never forget it. This lady who I could tell right off the bat she was very hospitable, a very good hostess. We were staying at this little uh, kind of a they turned an apartment that was connected to their home. And because there were so many people having dinner that night with my family, their family, their kids' family, that it was this long table. And she had made all this food. And instead of putting, like, she had this pasta salad. Instead of putting the pasta salad in one giant bowl, she spread the pasta salad into like four bowls so that everybody at the table could reach the pasta salad where they were sitting. Now, I know that seems trivial, but it impressed me so much. I'll never forget it. I'll be like, how clever is that to make sure that her visitors are, at, are being served to the utmost? Have you ever thought of ways you can serve people better? Have you ever thought of ways like, you know what? I bet this would be a better blessing. Listen, I know you may not drink you know, certain drinks, that doesn't mean everybody doesn't. Don't just have, you know, alkaline water in your house when you're serving people because you're trying to be healthy. Is that weird? Have chai, have some soda, have some juice, have some water, have some milk, put it all out there. She's serving. She's going to be honored for this. You know how many people are going to see her in heaven? We all are. We'd be like, Martha... You fed Jesus and his disciples. Rewards in heaven for this. So we see the heartfelt service of Martha. Secondly, we see the humble sacrifice of Mary. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Listen, guys. When the Bible says very costly... The Bible is the master of understatements. There is not a book that has ever been written in the history of the world that understates things more than the Bible. Because the Bible does not use any exaggeration or hyperbole, which, let me pick on myself again in America. We do. Americans always do this. Man, so starving, you know. My kids do this all the time. And me and Kelsey are always like, you've never been starving a day in your life. In fact, we were driving uh, uh, out in um, by 10. I don't know. We were coming back. I think we were trying to get some lumber. And it was Peter Adoyo in the passenger seat. I was driving and my, all three of my kids in the back. And it was getting a little late. So I was late for dinner. I think we're actually coming from Dean and and Alfred's house. So it was Dean and Alfred's fault that I was late for dinner. But we're we're coming from their house. And one of my kids goes, I'm starving. And I said, no one in this car has ever been starving a day in their life. And then I thought to myself, I don't know Peter's testimony. You know, he's Kenyan after all. I said, "Uh, Peter, have you ever been starving? He's like, yeah. 
when my parents died, there were some tough times. It's like, oh, no white person in this car has ever been starving. We, are, we, we, we exaggerate. We use hyperbole. Man, there was like a million people there. No, there wasn't. When the Bible says very costly and just brushes it over, it was probably around, if, if we were to get technical, like ten to $15,000. Some people have said as low as $5,000. Other people say as high as $80,000, which I don't think it was. That's how much this cost. It was probably given to her through an inheritance because um, she was not a rich woman. And it was in such a way that it was kind of waxed over that it was an enclosed box. When you open it, it's opened one time and it's used for a celebration or in this case, she's using it for his burial. She's anointing the feet of Jesus Christ. Um, for his burial, the Bible says. So in her worship, she gives what is the most costly thing in her life. The most precious thing that she could ever have. Which, by the way... We're going to move on to the, the disciples here. But the disciples said that we could have sold this and give it to the poor. That is what often happened through these inheritances of these costly fragrances that would happen for somebody's burial or happen at somebody's wedding or something like that. They would sell it because times were so difficult at this point in time, under the oppression of Rome and under the religious oppression of the Jews, that they would have to sell it to provide for their families food. Sell it so they could have food to eat. I guess that's the only thing you do with food, but you get the point. And she probably, if we're going to speculate, has plans to sell this so that she can have food for the year or the month or whatever it is, and instead breaks it open in this moment for Jesus Christ, the most valuable thing in her life. We see this humble sacrifice of Mary, incredible worship. And I like how the Holy Spirit always moves because... We sang the song tonight, which I didn't tell the worship team to sing it. I, I, I guess at least one person on the worship team was spirit-led tonight. I don't know about all of them. No, I'm kidding. It, they sang, I surrender all. It's often a song used in preaching to kind of try to exhort and rebuke the congregation. Because the only thing that the Lord is going to accept from, all, from our lives is all or nothing. That's kind of the arrangement. That's kind of the deal with Jesus Christ, our Lord. He will have all of us or he will have none of us. She gives it all to him. Everything. There's no nine to five relationship that Mary has with Jesus Christ. She is giving everything that is valuable to her, the most valuable thing to her, to Jesus Christ in worship. 
And when we sing that song, as they so beautifully sang it, it's so enjoyable being in worship, isn't it? Hearing these people sing. Wonderful. And you're sitting there like, yes. Are there things in my life that I haven't surrendered? Is everything a part of, in my life? Is my home? Yes, even my, my family, my wife and kids, but also, yes, the building itself of my home. Is that surrender to Jesus Christ. This is his. Is everything I own belong to Jesus Christ? Because if you do have a vehicle and Jesus Christ owns your vehicle, then you don't get to be selfish with it. Or does, does he own your phone too? Or is that a personal possession? Because some of, the, uh, of our histories might not show that Jesus Christ owns our cell phones which is inadvertently showing that he doesn't own our mind and hearts. There's an old Southern gospel song. I gave everything to him except one part of our, my heart. I wouldn't let him in. Finally, I opened the door. It is so important that everything about our life is dedicated to the service and worship of Jesus Christ. Everything. What would our church look like in just one month if every part of every member of our church, every part of their lives was dedicated completely to one individual, and that's Jesus Christ, I am telling you, it would be nothing short of a revival. Nothing short of a revival. Does your mouth belong to Jesus Christ? The things you speak what comes off of your tongue? Because the Bible says that the tongue is like a poison. It can tear people down. Do you use your words to build people up or to tear people down? Whether it be to, 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 in, in front of them or not. Because oftentimes we use our words to tear people down behind their back. To make people look less than us so that we can feel better about ourselves. Something that we're all guilty of. Is every part of your life, does it belong to Jesus Christ? It's very important that you ask yourself that question. Now, I want to give you a sneak peek into Sunday. So you're going to hear this twice, uh, having been here tonight. It says, as you look in John chapter 12, that his disciples did not understand these prophecies. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Also, the Old Testament prophecies, it's, uh, by the way, plural. So there is all kinds of prophecies involved in Jesus Christ coming into Jerusalem on Monday on a donkey's colt. All kinds of prophecies that they should have been, they should have known about. And then I'm not talking about just the disciples. The Pharisees should have known about it. The religious leaders, the nation of Israel should have been there. Oh, he's definitely the Messiah. And we'll get into that on Sunday. But the thing I want to point out is that these disciples are confused. It says 
They did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and they had done these things to him. Verse 16. So that word glorified means to lift up. Very interesting is that this is actually talking about once they understood the cross of Jesus Christ, that is how the Bible refers to the cross more than it refers to the cross as the cross. His glorification. And there is an entire study on that, on how genius it is. But all through the New Testament, it would refer to his glorification synonymously speaking about the cross. And that's what it's doing in John chapter 12. When he was glorified, then they understood the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus. Very interesting. So it gives us a key about something. How can we discern prophecy? Now, of course, we have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't noticed, we're putting scriptures all around the church. Our church's foundation is the word of God. We got it there. This was one of my favorites when I first got saved. This is probably one of the most unique, glorious scriptures in all of the Bible because this is the only time in the incarnate God speaks about who he is as a person. Very interestingly. But also the scriptures you come in to the parking lot and from the lobby into the sanctuaries. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So we must grow in the knowledge of God. But that th theoretical knowledge is not that we grow in all things, including prophecy, which is the subject here, is not how we understand or discern prophecy. It's not an intellectual thing. It's not an IQ thing. It's not theoretical knowledge even of the Bible. Do you want to know the answer? And the Bible tells us to it on how to really know and discern prophecy. Well, I think Mary gives it to us. I really do, because these disciples are confused about something that is very simple to understand, theoretically. You don't even need to be smart to understand. Two different times in Luke chapter 9, Jesus Christ says, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die. Is that complicated? And then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And after the second time he says it in Luke chapter 9, it says they were confused and did not understand what he said. It blows my mind. I've mentioned this, I know, a lot at the church here. Isn't that insane? I'm going to die on the cross. And the disciples are sitting there like, I, I, I don't get it. I don't know what he's saying. It's the, the deception. The veil that was over their eyes, and we know what that veil is, and we know what that deception is. Right after that, in Luke chapter 9, it actually says that they did not understand what he was saying, and a dispute arose amongst them who was the greatest. 
Why don't they understand something as simple as Jesus is going to die by way of crucifixion? Because they were so worried about their own exaltation, their own glorification being lifted up, rather than understanding that the greatest exaltation and the greatest glorification was he who humbles himself enough to die on a cross for others. Jesus Christ. It's incredible. There may be one person and, and I say this because it's a little bit speculative, but I think it's true. We know there's no person that directly has said in the New Testament, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying about his death, burial, and resurrection. But there may be one person that actually believes that Jesus is in control about his death on the cross. That's Mary. It's Mary. Because she anoints him for what? His burial. He's, he's still alive. So she anoints him for his burial. Now whether or not she is anointing from the burial and that's what the scripture is saying, which I believe it is, or Jesus is saying she doesn't know this, but she's anointing for me for my burial, which it doesn't say, which leads me to believe the exact literal rendering of this is she is anointing me for my burial. That's what she's doing. That's why she broke the alabaster box. She's mentioned three times in the New Testament. Three times. Do you know where she is every time Mary is mentioned in the New Testament? Anybody want to shout it out? Boom. The feet of Jesus Christ. Where does she have to look? when she's at the feet of Jesus Christ to hear the teachings come out of his mouth? Up. The reason why she can see the cross clearly is because he has been glorified in her life even while he was alive. The whole time. Why can she see prophecy? Because she is watching him teach and because he is on the throne of her heart, he's number one and that is indicated by the alabaster box, she can understand that he is actually saying he's going to die on the cross. And these guys are confused about it until they understand the cross. Not until they understand Daniel 9. Not until they understand, oh, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming on a donkey's colt. That's talking about Jesus. No, after the cross, they understand prophecy. Until Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, sitting on the throne of your heart, number one, you will not see things clearly. You cannot see things clearly. You will not see prophecy clearly. You will not see the will of God for your specific life clearly, which you should be listening to the Holy Spirit. The moment that things get confusing for you, the thing you need to check is not theoretical information. The first thing you need to check is that did Jesus get off the throne of your heart and somebody else is ruling your life, which is usually you or me. Because the moment that he gets back on the throne of your heart, then the whole world, including prophecy, is seen clearly. You look at the humble sacrifice of Mary. You look at her worship. You also look at the clarity in which she understands prophecy because she understands the glorification of Jesus Christ. 
And then, thirdly, you see the hastiness of the disciples. You got the heartfelt service of Martha. You got the humble sacrifice of Mary. Now the hastiness of the disciples. And yes, congratulations, women. These guys are much more confused. I mean, these guys... One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? That's a lot of money. And given to the poor. This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. So you have the disciples, by the way, in another rendering, the disciples are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you see this guy who is probably viewed as the most spiritual person out of the 12 disciples. The most spiritual person. That doesn't make him the greatest in, in the sense of their culture. But Judas is, is like, we could have given this to the poor. And these disciples are like, yeah. What a great idea, Judas. Look at the waste. Can you imagine calling something waste that is being used in the name of Christ for Christ? He is extravagant in his receiving of worship. We, it's like, oh, this 300. Guys, and, and my pastor points this out, which I, I think is valid. He sounds like a politician. In fact, if you were to examine the Democrat Party, he sounds like a Democrat. He sounds like a government official, whether it be America, somebody that thinks they know better what to do with your money than you know what to do with it. So, years ago, um, I had somebody, a friend of mine, I won't mention names, telling me why Ryla Odinga would be so much better for this nation than the other presidents. I don't know Ryla. I still don't know him very well, but I thought I would tune in to one news report and listen to him preach. So he's, or not preach, listen to him talk, whatever he's saying. And he's talking, and he talks about, and listen, I don't know if he's better or not, okay? So don't sit there. I'm, I hope I don't lose you. But he mentioned about if we can tax this, we can do more good this way. Immediately I know that he's not a good politician. Because politicians who believe in high tax are always not right for the people of the nation. I don't need to, I mean, of course I want to know moral standings. But guys, I know a moral standing when somebody tells me I want to take your money because I believe I can do good with it more than you. Nobody's going to do better good for, uh, with my money, especially a government official, than I am for myself. We could have given it to the poor. Do you know how much taxes has to go on? Because when people distribute to the poor, they have to be staffed in order to know who's going to give to who. I mean, there's all kinds of problems. And we know this is true because the Bible tells us that when God was the ruler of Israel... The nation of Israel were not satisfied and they said, we want a king like other nations. And Samuel said to them, if you get a king, he has to have a house. If you get a king, he has to have servants. If you get a king, he has to have a staff. So you're going you're gonna to get taxed. 
It's not going to be good, but I'll give you what you want. Let's see if uh, a king can rule better than God. This guy is not, he, and the Bible says he does not care for the poor because, by the way, God cares for the poor. And Jesus cares. Can, can you imagine the audacity? Can you imagine the audacity that Judas is now making himself to care more about the poor than Jesus Christ does? Oh, if Jesus was really a man of God, if he was really our master, the son of God, he would have known that this should have been sold to the poor. And isn't it interesting that he is a kindred spirit to a lot of politicians, that he was actually talking about the poor while he was stealing from the money box. As I mentioned, it doesn't say here, but another rendering of this, it mentions that the disciples were on Judas' side. Oh, that's a great idea, Judas. Wow. We need to counsel Jesus on what should be used to worship him and what shouldn't be. When we become the counselors of Jesus Christ, when we become the counselors of God, we have removed Jesus Christ from the throne of our hearts and we will not be able to see prophecy clearly or other things clearly. Never think for a moment that you should counsel God. You know what? Oftentimes, we don't realize we're counseling God. Some of the signs that we our counseling God is by our complaining, by our murmuring. We might not be saying about God, but when we complain, when, when the disciples, or excuse me, when the nation of Israel was complaining to Moses, they didn't actually say the words, oh God, we don't want you, we don't need you, we were better off in Egypt. They said it to Moses. We want uh, onions and we want garlic. Take us back. At least when we were slaves getting beat on the back with whips, we had garlic. I love garlic, I think, probably more than the next person, but I do not love garlic that much. They were so hasty. And the reason why I say hasty, guys, is they were quick to agree with Judas is because this. We need to take a step back in different circumstances in life and say, what is God doing here? What's God doing here? I just, I'm thinking of it because I was telling my friends, Jeff and April Blackwell, about this land cruiser I had. I flipped it on the way to, um, to Nairobi. And it's just... That was a season of my life, I think, where the Lord had been working in me so powerfully. And guys, don't think I'm crazy when I tell you this. Don't think I'm insane. But the truck was flipping so slowly, and, and it was like breaking down on the way to Nairobi. And so I stopped in and Burton Forest, and I tried to find some mechanics there, and, uh, which was a really village, you know. So these guys didn't speak English. I didn't speak Swahili, so we're... I'm just like, fix the car. And they're like, yeah, so they're, we're doing a test drive and it's not really working, it's putter. So I'm gonna back 
I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go back to Elder and I'm going to drop them back off where I picked them. And as I'm backing in this embankment, my tires go off. But it went off in such a way that it was flipping the truck so slow. Like so slow. And, and because of this, these, these guys who had really I had, had no temperance or, or patience for those mechanics, they thought they were going to die. It was going so slowly, I was giving directions. I was like, guys, keep your arms in, the vehicles at all times, you know. And, and when we're flipping, they started screaming in such a way. I re- that I start laughing as my truck is flipping. I'm like, <laughs> these guys. That's how slow it was tripping. The Lord was working in my life with such patience. I remember another time, I had been here a couple years and a team was coming out to visit us, actually from Calvary Bangor. And the electrical um, system basically shut down on the truck no lights, no blink, nothing, but somehow this 1987 Land Cruiser was still running. So I come into the airport. I was explaining it to the police because they're saying your lights are off and, and it's nighttime. And I go and I pick eight people up. One of these ladies is 78 years old. She doesn't get around as well as when she was 30. And she comes out and I don't know if she was that short always, but she shrunk to like four or five. She was like a hobbit. I wanted to just carry her and talk to her. It's like this old lady. So I put her in the, the Land Cruiser and the electrical system shut down. And at JKIA, you know the uh, little tube thing that just goes up and down when tr- the parking? Well, you got to pay for parking at the end of the airport. It's like I didn't see it. I went right through it and busted that thing wide open like 30 kilometers an hour. Didn't see it. I went right through it. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. I stop. I get out. And as I'm getting out, there's a guy with a machine gun, a military police pointing it at me. I'm like, calm down. And I'm walking. And as I look over in the land cruiser, that lady's nose is against the window. Like, (laughs) I'm just like this poor 78-year-old American woman from Belfast, Maine. And, 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 and so we, we get out, we, we, we sleep, and then we got to go to Eldoret. It took us 13 hours to get to Eldoret because my Land Cruiser tire, and we didn't have any money back then, it was slowly leaking, slowly leaking. So every 45 minutes, I had to pull over on the side of the road, and I had to pump it up with a bicycle pump. So I'd be like, guys, got to pull over. Eight people... took me 20 to 30 minutes to fill it up and then another 45 minutes and finally Peggy Bruning is like Josh what is the matter with you are you out of your mind we would have bought a new tire in Nairobi if you would have told me this was going to happen and in that season of my life I'm just I got to the point where I was like Lord what are you trying to teach me here You could have kept that tire filled the entire way. You fed 5,000 people with a few loaves, a few fishes. You you could have turned our electrical system on 
And I, so I could see where I was going, driving through Nairobi and not ended up at the police station. You could have saw all that. You could have done it all. What, you didn't do it and you have the power to do it. What are you trying to teach me? Is it my faith? Is it, is I'm an impatient person, you want to grow patience? Whatever it is, we need to get to the point in our lives where we are not so hasty and we stop and we look back. Instead of being impatient, we say, what is, what's happening here? God can fix everything right now with his power. And, and, I, and by the way, I pray for that. Like, Lord, please heal this person. Lord, please fill up this tire. Or Lord, please turn the electrical system on. This is really uncomfortable. But the Lord is trying to teach me something. And we need not to be hasty because oftentimes in our impatience, in our anger, in our frustrations, in our different annoyances, we're missing the very thing God is trying to show us. He's trying to show us things. Do you know God's trying to speak to you every single day of your life? And because we have our ears closed so often, that he, because he's so loving, he tries to use circumstances. And at times he needs to just flip our truck to get us to laugh at ourselves and the mechanic screaming in the back. Or, or, or stop the electrical system or shut the tire because maybe there's somebody that we need to meet through the 15 times I have to pump a tire up on the side of the road that needs to hear the gospel. Maybe, I don't know, but the Lord will speak to us every single day if we'll listen. But we have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. I... I've got, I, I fly all around America, all around. I'm, I'm in a plane almost every weekend. And man, you should see people flip out when things don't go as planned. People lose their minds in, in airports and on airplanes. I mean, I've seen people get dragged off of airplanes <laughs> in cuffs because they lost their mind and started threatening things. Ah, I need to get home, you know, just crazy people. I used to get a lot more impatient. Nowadays at these airports, I'm thinking, what's the Lord trying to do? Is he trying to get me to speak to that person? There was a time that um, there was, uh, you know, usually I get my seats right. Usually I get my seats right. I'm pretty sharp in an airport, on an airplane, because I've been in so many. But I was sitting in the wrong seat. And this guy comes up, he's an older gentleman, has a big white beard, and he, he, he says, you're my seat. And he was really rough and tough and gruff. You could tell this guy is a rough dude. And I'm like, no, nah, I ain't. Read your ticket right, bro. He's like, no, you read your ticket right. You're in my seat, move over. And I almost, and, and I have this principle in my life that I've been trying to teach my church for 12 years, consider the possibility on every single given day that you're wrong about something. So I'm like, let me check my ticket. Man, you're right. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. It's crazy. I don't like it. And I started joking around to try to settle the, the mood. So I'm joking with this guy and, and, I, and, and I'm joking with him to the point where I think he's almost at the point where he's going to punch me in the face. 
I think this guy wants to break my jaw. And finally, I'm just like, all right, come on, man, talk to me. How's your wife? Just like that. How's your wife? And he's like, she died of cancer a few months ago. And I'm angry. And I'm angry. And I'm angry at God. And he started crying right in the seat. I bet that guy doesn't cry in front of people often. He's an old mainer. His hands are so thick from labor that you, you could probably crush somebody's skull with how strong his hands are. Big old guy. And that guy sat there, cried on that airplane as we prayed for him. And I told him it's not God's fault for a whole hour and a half on the way to Philly. He can take circumstances. Just all kinds. Of, I was stuck in Chicago once at the airport. They kept us in the runway for three hours. Now, if you've ever been closed in on the plane for three hours, it's miserable out on a runway. And I'm like, man, the Lord is trying to get me to talk to somebody. He's trying to get me to talk to somebody. I know it. Well, he put me next to this person. You born again? <laughs> Just a whole... After getting over myself for about an hour, being frustrated, it was like a three hours. Like, man, this ain't no big deal to us. We've been talking. It's like five minutes. My point is, this is my point. And guys, I've blown it. I'm only giving you the stories where I succeeded. All right, I'm not telling you the ones where I don't because that's more, that's a lot more. But I can tell you this. We have to be careful not to be hasty. And we need to say, Holy Spirit, what are you trying to teach me right now? What are you saying? What do you want me to do? What's going on in this circumstance? If the disciples would have done that, they would have been like, hold on, hold on. Before we agree with Judas, before we're hasty, oh, Judas, yeah, you're right. We would be like, wait a minute. We call him Lord. We call him Master. We believe he's going to be the King of Israel. We believe he's the Messiah. Should we actually side with Judas over Jesus? This doesn't make sense. Christ, instead of agreeing with him, do you, do you actually think that, explain this because we're confused. She's worshiping you and you received it. If they would have done that, it would have been a whole different situation. So you have the, Heartfelt service of Martha, the humble sacrifice of Mary, the hastiness of disciples. Jesus says, let her alone. Leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. You know, I was thinking about this Asbury um, revival they were having at that school. I don't know. I, I, I heard somebody say that they, they had an LGBTQ person come up and testify. I, I, I don't think that's true. I haven't found that yet. If I'm wrong, I'll stand to be corrected. But I, I heard all the criticism of it. To be honest with you, I got really excited that the Lord is starting to break out revival around the world. And I see all these snooty on YouTube, theologians, it's like, well, we need to examine. I get that we need to test the spirits. But I believe it's a move of God. And you know what else? I see all the criticism over the Jesus Revolution movie. 
You know what I think Jesus would say to those people? Leave them alone. Leave them alone. That was my spirit working in the 60s in the Jesus movement. Leave it alone. I poured out my spirit at Esbury Revival. He says to these disciples, leave them alone. Leave her alone. You didn't give what was most precious to you, to me. You were trying to look at me to give you what you want, what you think is precious, is, but it's not. And that's a position in a new kingdom that you have no part of. We have no part of the kingdom of the world. Leave them alone. Leave her alone. She's anointed me for my burial. The poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. And then lastly, you have a great many Jews who knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. You have the hatred of the Jews. They hate Jesus Christ so much that they want to kill any evidence of any salvation or miracles that he has brought into people's lives. Guys, this is like the mafia. This is like the mafia. They're like, oh, he was raised from the dead. Kill him. We don't want evidence of Jesus' supernatural power. It's like the mafia. It's like, wait a minute. He raised him from the dead. He must be from God. No, kill him. Why? Because Jesus threatened the system of worship of the Jews that made these religious Jews rich. He threatened it. So it doesn't matter that he's God. It doesn't matter that he's the Messiah. Kill any evidence. Do you see the contrast between Martha, Mary... And then the disciples, Judas, and the Jews. You have the heartfelt service of Martha, the humble sacrifice of Mary, the hastiness of the disciples, the hatred of the Jews. I want to be like Martha and Mary. I want to serve Jesus, and I want to give him what's most precious to me. I want to give him everything. Let's have the worship team come up. We'll sing this, this last song. Let me pray for us, guys. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how good it is, how wonderful it is. We love you, Lord. Thank you for those two women. Can't wait to meet them, Martha and Mary. The ones that were actually at your tomb. We thank you. And I pray, Lord, that we would give what's precious to us as we serve you and serve others with all of our heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.